Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to uh, Luke chapter 24. If you've been around, you know that we're, we've been working our way through John's gospel, so this is a, uh, a bit of a uh, sort of standalone message. You're probably familiar with the phenomenon known as post-Christmas blues. Anybody suffer from post-Christmas blues? You know how it is. You, you have months leading up to this big day, and really begins in, in late October, I guess, and and you start singing the same songs and shopping and decorating and you go through all the preparations and all the anticipation. And then it comes to Christmas morning, you, you open your gifts and then it's over. It, it's all over. And so the, the, uh, just how hard that hits some people, I guess, is, is evident. Some people I know, in fact, I know one couple that they leave their Christmas lights up until mid-March because they just can't stand to deal with the thought that, Christmas is over. Well, in the life of the church, there's also something called post-Easter blues. All the promotion, all of the planning uh, leads up to an amazing celebration where volunteers are buzzing and attendance skyrockets. We add an extra service, got donuts in the foyer. Uh, People who've been gone from church uh, for a whole year are back. We have guests visiting from all over the place. There's a spirit of joy and unity together. People are taking their pictures together. It's just a real spirit of celebration. And then, in a moment, it's over. I heard one, uh, I read the testimony of one pastor who wrote this immediately after Easter. He said, The post Easter blues aren't logical, but they are real. We lie awake Easter night, keenly aware of every little misspoken word, missed cue, or other minor mistake. While our kids are hunting for Easter eggs on Sunday afternoon, our minds are divided, still half-focused on the service. We're irritable and snap at our friends and family members only a few hours after exalting the risen Christ in worship. And, you know, we were, we were invited to a couple places after Easter. I thought, you know, it's probably better that I don't go because I know that I'm going to be thinking about the service the whole time. And this doesn't just uh, impact, of course, ministers, pastors, ministry leaders, um, it's hard next week for everyone really to turn around and get back to normal. The donuts are gone. Uh, it's back to one service. Those friends and family members that we were so excited that, to see them show up, they're, they're not back this week. No one is taking their picture together anymore. It's just kind of a sad thing as we turn the corner. So what do we do the week after Easter? Well, before we launch into this study through the book of Jonah, I want to look at what happened to two guys who experienced themselves a bit of post-resurrection blues. They say to themselves, well, we, we really hope that this guy Jesus was the one. We, we put all of our eggs in that basket, so to speak, and then it turns up he's not the one. He's killed and he's gone. So this morning I want to do things a little differently. We kind of work our way through a section at a time, and then I'll, I'll offer kind of a point to clarify or drive something home. I want to briefly explain the text, and then I want to give you Three negative and three positive implications from this text. So Luke chapter 24, let me read verses 13 through 20. The word of the Lord reads this way. That very day, two of them were going to a village called or named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. 
And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. You know it's not good if you're walking and talking with someone, you say something, they just stop and stare at you. This is what happened. And then one of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So it's the very day of the resurrection. And at this point, you know, Jesus is still making his sort of post-resurrection rounds. And there's an extreme, almost debilitating sense of sadness in the air. And in some ways, really, it's hopelessness. Because the dreams and hopes of Jesus' followers have been dashed. And as two of Jesus' disciples are walking along the road from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, Jesus catches up with them and enters into their conversation. But they don't realize it's Jesus. They don't know to whom they're talking. And so as they're walking along, Jesus asks them what they're talking about. When he does, they stop walking, and with great sadness, they sort of reprimand him by saying, Are you the only person who doesn't realize what's happened in Jerusalem? And then they express very pointedly the reason for their despair. Look at verses 21 through 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find anybody, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They thought, one of the reasons for their despair is they thought that Jesus was going to come and accomplish a different sort of victory. They thought that he would come and sort of free them from the oppression to Rome and, and sort of liberate them from their captivity, and kind of just like the Exodus, where God delivered his people from slavery at the Passover so they could serve and worship God with freedom. Their hope was that God would accomplish a new exodus through this Messiah, that God would free them from the tyranny of the imperial government, but Jesus' death to them meant that all their hopes had gone down in flames. So the crucifixion to them meant that Jesus was not their long-awaited Redeemer, and this left them in a, a state of despair. Now, their problem was, again, these two disciples thought that the redemption they needed was strictly political, but what they really needed and didn't realize it was to be freed from the bondage to sin. And what we know that they didn't is that the crucifixion is the only way for that to take place. Now look at verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, it sounds harsh when we read what Jesus says. He says, oh, foolish ones. But what he really was saying was, how could you not see this? How could you not realize through the events of my life that the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, they're actually talking about me? 
How could you not see that I am the fulfillment of the scriptures? I don't know how long it takes to walk seven miles at a leisurely pace. That's how far it was from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I know it sometimes takes Janine and me about three hours to get through Target my day off. So I'm imagining that this being a little bit longer journey, uh, it probably took three or four hours. We don't know exactly how long, but it was long enough for Jesus to explain to them how all the scriptures were actually about him. Now, later that same night, he would also meet with his disciples and he would say, look, don't you realize the scriptures are all about me. He would add, he would add to uh, Moses and the prophets the, the Hebrew word ketavim, which means the writings, even the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's all about Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he, he sort of systematically goes through the scriptures, beginning with Moses, that is beginning with the beginning, and he explains how all the scriptures are actually about him. They all point to him. The prophets foretell of Jesus. The historical narrative anticipates Jesus. The law points us to Jesus. The wisdom literature pictures Jesus, himself being the true wisdom. The gospels feature Jesus. The epistles reflect on Jesus and his atoning work. The apocalyptic literature looks to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about him. Gerhardus Voss, the great 20th century theologian, wrote this, the genuine believer takes the whole of Scripture as a living organism produced by the Holy Spirit to present Christ to him. On every page of Scripture, he finds traits and traces of the mediator. Longtime professor and author Edmund Clowney, who's influenced so many pastors, he wrote this, The witness of the Scriptures to Christ is the reason they were written. Now, how often do we miss that? How often do we look at the Bible as a manual for living, a guidebook on right behavior, rules to abide by, secrets to the good life, rather than the story about a person, a love story about a God who would determine by His grace to save, to redeem, to buy out of slavery a sin-cursed world through the person and work of His Son? Now, Jesus would tenderly correct these men. It has a profound impact on them. Look at verses 28. Through 32, so they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Uh, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? As they're getting near their destination, it looks as though Jesus is going to continue walking. And when Luke says that it, it, Jesus it acted like he was going to continue, it wasn't like he tried to pull a, uh, pull a fast one on them you know, and say, say, hey, guys, you go ahead. i got to st stop and tie my sandals, but I'll catch up with you later, and then disappear. This is not what happened. He actually was going to go further, but the disciples, these two men persuaded him to stay, and so he, he eagerly stayed with them. And not only does he stay and have dinner with them, but he incredibly, he reveals to them who he is. And as if that were not powerful enough, he opens their blind eyes to his identity, but then he enables them to finally see 
what he was saying to them about the scriptures. Verse 32, they say to themselves, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, why did their hearts burn within them? It was because he explained, again, how all the scriptures find their fulfillment in him. He explained how the scriptures are actually about him, not a personal improvement plan, not a guide on how to live a better life. Jesus totally reframed their understanding of the Bible as he showed them himself in them, how he is the Savior that the world has been waiting for. He came to die and be raised from the dead so that we could be reconciled to God by his work alone, by faith in his work. And when he enabled them to see that, Their hearts were set ablaze with hope, with power, with a burning desire to go and tell others about him. If we read on, we'd see they immediately, that same day, we're told, made the seven-mile trek back to Jerusalem to tell others about what they had seen and experienced. Their hearts exploded as Jesus explained to them, "This, this book, this book is about me. This book is about me. I have a friend who's just remarkably brilliant, and he has multiple earned degrees from America and from Europe, and he's you know, just a, a, a real brilliant guy. But he has no trouble carrying on a normal conversation. You know, sometimes people who are really, really bright, so you have a difficult time actually carrying on a conversation. He, he's kind of like a lot of people here at Capshaw who are extremely smart, right? Extremely smart, but they don't make you feel like an idiot when you're talking to them. Although I did have one guy send me an email that referred to this, and I quote, The role of the lunar terrain model in rover simulation as part of the rover vehicle design process. But I, 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 don't, I have no idea what to do. I had no idea how to respond. I mean, the best I could come up with was, how about that Nick Saban? Uh, he's, he, he's really something, isn't he? I, I, mean, I didn't know what to say. What in the world is a rover lunar process? But, you know, we have some really smart people here. But what I love about this church is even though they're bright and they're self-directed and you can have regular conversations with them. Well, my friend is kind of the same way. But one of the things he would say, and this sounds like a really jerky thing to say, I realize this, but one of the things he would say occasionally when you're having a conversation with him, somebody would say something and he would say, what is the value of that insight? Now, again, and that sounds really mean, doesn't it? But, but what he was saying was, okay, I don't, like, how does that actually help me? You know, sometimes as Christians, we can say things that they sound really spiritual and they sound really amazing, you know, but then you kind of explore a little further. Like, what does that actually even mean? I don't even understand what that means. So he would say, when you have a conversation, occasionally, I didn't say this all the time, that would get annoying. But occasionally he would say, what is the value of that insight? In other words, how does that actually help me here? We talk all the time here at Cabshaw about being a Christ-centered church. We talk all the time about the Bible being about Jesus. Not about us primarily, but about Jesus. So I want to take just a few minutes and very quickly answer my friend's questions here. What's the value of that insight? I want to quickly point out three consequences of missing Jesus, that is reading the Bible as if it's all about us, and three benefits of seeing Jesus in all the Scriptures. So let me start with the negatives, the consequences. What happens when we fail to see that the Bible is actually about Jesus and not us? Now, this applies to preaching, but it also applies to the shepherding we do in our homes. It applies to our small groups, our Sunday schools, how we parent our children. So here's the first consequence of failing to see that the Bible is about Jesus and what he's done. 
Christianity becomes indistinguishable from every other religion. Every religion has some sort of system of obligations, some sort of system of requirements that are explained in a sacred text which show us how to get right with the gods or become one with the universe or whatever that religion touts. Every religion has those obligations or duties. If the Bible is simply our, a manual on how to live, if Christianity boils down to reading a book and then doing what it says, in other words, moral improvement, then Christianity is no different than Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Scientology, Mormonism, or any other self-improvement plan. If we look at the Bible as simply a, the way that we're supposed to live, rules for living, then Christianity becomes indistinguishable from every other religion. Now, are there commands in Scripture? Absolutely. Are there things that God calls us to do? <laughs> Certainly. And we are called to obey those commands, whether we like it or not, because He's God and we're not. But that's not the point of the Bible, do these things and don't do these things. The point of the Bible is God created us for Himself to be in a relationship with Him. And as part of that relationship, He commanded us to live in a certain way for His glory, our good, and the benefit of our neighbor. But we failed to live how God commanded, every single one of us. So Jesus came and actually lived God's way perfectly for us so that people who failed could be forgiven, saved and declared not guilty, brought back into a relationship with this God. Now, here's a second consequence of failing to see that the Bible is about Jesus. Our hearts will become cold as we focus on ourselves and our obedience rather than on Jesus and His. As Christians, if we're duped into believing that being a Christian is really about what one does and what one refrains from doing, then faith, which is really at the heart of the Christian message, faith becomes the prelude to what really matters, and that is our struggle for obedience. So faith is kind of put off to the periphery, and what really matters is our obedience. One of the things I think it would be good for us to ask ourselves, and I've tried to apply this to my own life, when we're reading the Bible, is what's our goal? What's the goal? I mean, is the goal to make it through in a year? That's good. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Is the goal to... Uh, learn how to behave and not behave? Is the goal to check off a certain uh, box uh, on our list? What, what is the goal? What are we actually hoping to achieve? We don't often ask that question, but I think the implications are rather staggering. Here's what I mean. Think about the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap. They actually, they were sincere. They weren't phonies. They, they were trying their hardest to to do what they thought God was calling them to do. But they missed the point entirely. They knew the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. They could recite huge passages by memory and at any moment. They even taught other people to obey and how to obey. But listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Now, why was that? Well, their spiritual lostness was partly because they were adding things to the Scriptures and teaching as doctrine the commandments of men, Jesus says. 
But the other reason for their lostness was their darkness because they failed to see that the Bible was about Jesus. In fact, Jesus would confront them on this in John chapter 5. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think, you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, I'm not trying to be controversial here for the sake of controversy when I say this. Life is not in the book, as the Pharisees supposed, but only in the man of the book. The written word bears witness to the living word. If we read the Bible just to learn how to live, to figure out what to do, not only will our Bible reading grow cold, but our spiritual lives will begin to wilt. But if we read the Bible to see Jesus, to see His glory and His power and His faithfulness and His love for us when we fail over and over again, to see His majesty and His royalty and His humility, that's actually life-giving. There's joy in that. There's power in that. That's invigorating. Now, here's the third consequence of missing Jesus. Our joy in God's love is clouded by a vague sense that our Father's delight in us is contingent on our spiritual progress. Now, this is real. I think this is really the cause of so many ups and downs, so many of our spiritual issues, because we believe that if I have a really good day, that God really loves me great, loves me well, but when I have a bad day, He withholds His love for me. Now, it's a devastating way to live. I want to look at the implications quickly of the benefits, the beauty of recognizing the Bible is not primarily about what we do or don't do, but about Jesus and what he's done. Here's the first one. First beauty is that Christianity is recognized for what it is, good news that no other religion can offer. Rather than the Bible being a list of things we are to do, when we read it, we are greeted by the good news of a God who saves sinners as a God who welcomes sinners on the merits of Jesus. The Bible tells us we're born slaves to sin, which means we're all born with hearts that are hardwired to seek what's best for us. We want what we want. I've been confronted with this in my own heart countless times this week. I want what I want. I want the food to be hot when I sit down and eat. I don't want to get rained on when I go out to my car. I want people to respond a certain way. I want what I want. This is the way we are. We're dominated by self-love. We want nothing to do with God's authority over our lives. But that causes a devastating emptiness, doesn't it? Now, now we try to fill that emptiness with all kinds of things. We say, if I just go to church and I, I do something nice for some people and make some moral improvements, God will notice me and make me happy. But things only get worse. And things will never get better until God causes us to realize just how far we've fallen from Him, how ridiculous it is for us to try to save ourselves, and how desperately we need His grace. Martin Luther said this, God must first smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. Then the conscience welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised weed nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. 
We cannot save ourselves. But God came down to save us, and the Bible tells that story. That's the story which centers on Jesus as the hero. And that story of God's redemptive love in Christ actually transforms homes, it transforms marriages, it transforms churches, it transforms communities. Now here's the second benefit of seeing the beauty of Jesus. As we are regularly encouraged by Christ's faithfulness for us, His obedience credited to us, our faith in Him is strengthened. I was talking to a, a young guy recently who shared with me when he was in college, he, he was incredibly self-disciplined. He said, I would get up, get up every morning, 545, and I would read the scriptures, and I would pray, and I never missed a morning. Now, this, to me, was shocking. Because when I was in college, just getting to class was like a huge achievement. I was so proud of myself. So this guy, to say he has this level of discipline, I was really blown away by that. But then he went on to say, even though discipline was my strong suit, and I was able to memorize entire books of the Bible. He said during that time as he read and memorized the scriptures so faithfully, his soul grew cold and indifferent. We say, wait a second. Like, how does that happen? How do you read the Bible and commit it to memory and still grow cold? Well, he went on to say that he had the principles of the Bible down cold. But he said somehow he had been led to believe that knowing the principles meant having a relationship with a person. Knowing the, knowing the principles while missing the person to whom the Scriptures bear witness just led to more guilt and less joy. But if we see the Bible again as this glorious story of God's salvation, of which Jesus is the hero, a story that showcases all that God has done to save us, even sending His Son, a Son who lived a perfect life and died on the cross and was raised again. We see God's love manifested in that way and we're able to really revel in that love. Then our faith is strengthened and our desire to worship and obey that God is intensified. Now here's the third benefit to seeing Jesus in the Scriptures. Our joy in God's love is more steadfast as we increasingly understand His love for us is unmovable and sure because of Christ. I've said many times, many times over the years, that what it is that moves the heart to obey, what it is that moves someone to love another person is the experience of love. It's the experience of love. So when we know that someone loves us and we experience that love and we feel it and we believe it, our hearts are then inclined to love the one who loves us. Love engenders love among the beloved. And so I've said many, many times, look, what's going to move someone to love and to worship and to tell anybody about God is an understanding of His love for us. Because we are fleshly creatures, our, our, love, our, our joy in God's love is always going to be somewhat fickle. We're always going to have those days, right? Always going to have those days when you know, you're, just, you're down and sad, and, and maybe, maybe you don't even know why. Maybe I can't even articulate, why do I feel this sort of gray malaise? Well, what's going on? You're always going to have those days because we are fleshly creatures. We live in the body of this flesh. But the more we understand God's love by seeing the Bible as a story of redemption, which is what it is, 
God's pursuit of us in Christ, our love then will become deeper and more stable and our hearts will become more inclined to worship and obey and live on mission. So how do we get somebody to tell another person about Jesus? What would possess someone to go to another country to put himself or herself in danger? Well, we can, I can stand up here every week and say, you know, you need, some of you need to be going. And maybe somebody will go out of guilt. But what moves someone at that level, what stirs someone at the heart level to actually tell someone about Jesus, to find joy and, and, and happiness and peace in the midst of a, the turmoil of life, to go on mission, the only thing that will move someone at that level is to understand something about the love of God in Christ. A story which Jesus says really makes up the whole Bible. Jesus says, how could you miss this? You foolish ones, how could you miss this? What I'm saying to you now is, it's all about me. And he explained to them how the scriptures were all about him. We have six people this morning who have been so captured by the love of God they want to show you, they want to, they want to declare in front of you what God has done to save them. So I'm going to pray in just a moment, and, we're going to, and I'm going to go back to the baptistry. We're going to sing a song together, and then we're going to sh- we have six people who are going to share their testimonies and be baptized as evidence of God's divine rescue of them. Let's pray.